0: Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here and I'm here to tell you about Energised. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with ePadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live.
1: Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. Your support helps us to produce more amazing podcasts, stage more live debates each year, and it will bring you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Sarah Langford. The barrister turned writer turned farmer joins us to talk about the human stories found within the farming industry and how we can think smarter about sustainability and where the food we put on our tables comes from. Sarah Langford is a barrister specialising in criminal and family law, and a successful writer having published a non-fiction memoir, In Your Defence, in 2018. But a move to greener pastures in 2017 inspired a second chapter in her career, taking on the running of a country farm in Suffolk, UK. It's the topic of her recently published book, Rooted, Stories of Life, Land and a Farming Revolution. Joining Sarah in conversation is Thomasina Myers, the cook, writer, broadcaster and co- founder of the restaurant group Oaxaca. Let's join Tomasina and Sarah now. Sarah, what a pleasure to be talking to you here for Intelligence Squared. I
0: am a huge fan. I have read Routed. I took it away with me last half term and it was wonderful. I particularly love your style of writing where you bring in stories from other followers. Was that what you did in your first book where you read in stories about law? Um, and entered into your subject matter that way?
3: Well, I guess for the whole of my career, because I was a criminal and family barrister before this unexpected life pivot. And that job was based around stories, really. Every time I stood up in front of a jury and often a judge, I was there to take somebody into the world of someone that they may never have Seen other than in a two-dimensional form of paperwork. So I understood in that job that stories can be extraordinarily powerful. We understand our world through stories all the time. And while polemics are useful and have their place, I know that I respond to stories really well. And so I wanted to write Um, In Your Defence was similar, but I wanted to write with Rooted about this world that is full of cartoons and stereotypes. Everybody has a really clear image in their head when I say the word farmer. Um, It could be an image from a children's picture book or it could be an image from a poster of ecological destruction. And of course, like everything in life, it's just a bit more complicated than that. And so within your defense, I wanted to do that with some of the people that I represented in the courts. And in rooted, I wanted to do that with some of the extraordinary people that I had met in this journey of becoming a farmer, which I had not expected to be on. And I wanted to make people who may never pick up a book about farming to think, well, I'm sucked into the story, and that's keeping me going. And on the way. I learn about this world that I may never have thought about in that particular way. So that was the idea behind it.
0: And I think you've done that incredibly well. In fact, I was very moved by your book launch where uh, someone said in the speeches that they were a total city girl, almost terrified of the country and yet completely gripped by this book, which is true because the storytelling is wonderful. But I'm really intrigued by what you just said, Mm. the stereotypes of farmers, but also your link to the farming because... You talk a bit about your journey into farming, which I'd love you to tell us now, Mm. but also about this almost forgotten background of farming that goes
3: back into your family. So do you want to touch upon on both those things Mm. for us? Well, maybe I should start with explaining how the whole thing came about in the first place. Um, That comment was made by my literary agent, who is a self-confessed urbanite. And after In Your Defense, which was a book about 10 years I'd spent as a criminal family barrister, uh, she had very clear plans of what was coming next, which was obviously a a crime fiction novel, because that's a natural leap from a criminal barrister to write a crime fiction. Of course, makes much more sense than write about farming. But while I was writing In Your Defense... Um, in 2017, my husband Ben lost his job and we left London, which is where we had based ourselves for the whole of our married life, where I had based my work life and moved to Suffolk, which is where Ben grew up. And we hadn't planned on this. It was, and I hadn't particularly wanted to go to the countryside. It wasn't like I had a yearning for kind of, you know, goats and jam making and things like that. I liked the city. I was brought up in the 80s. I loved kind of power suits and very busy pavements. And so that is what I suppose was even more unexpected when I fell in love with this new life, which was in part made all the more richer because we asked if we might take on the running of Ben's parents' farm. They had three pasture fields, which divided the cottage that we rented from the house that Ben grew up in. And they had just bought 180 acres of arable around the corner. And it had been managed from afar as kind of landowners. but we were there unemployed, had two very small kids. My youngest son was about less than a year old and my other son was less than three when we moved. And so we asked if we could take on the running of it. And in hindsight, I think in part, we felt very uprooted and we want there was something kind of deeply practical about doing this task of working out what was going to happen to this farm. Of course, we hadn't understood that we were becoming farmers at one of the biggest changes agriculture has seen in multiple generations, because as a result of Brexit, the Common Agricultural Payment subsidies were going, and they were on a tapered phase out. So that as of 2027 there would be no more land-based subsidy, which meant that the more land you owned, the more money, public money you got. And instead, there was this new phrase, public money for public good, which was coming in. And so we were faced with this choice. And it was a choice of economic stability, but also moral one, because I had been in the city where I had been told multiple times by newspapers and posters that the best thing we might be able to do is rewild it or take it out of farming altogether. And so I kind of set off on this exploration to try and work out what we should do now that we had the huge opportunity to make the decisions about it. And that is what led me to understand that within my own family, I realized I had the background to help me make that decision because like that great phrase goes the further backwards you look the further forward you can see and you can't I couldn't work out where we were going unless I worked out how we got here and so I realized that my own farm my my mom's family are, are farmers my grandparents were post-war farmers My grandfather took on his tenancy in Hampshire just five years after rationing ended in a country that was still very much feeling the impact of war and the need for self-sufficiency. And my dad was a land agent for the whole of his career. My uncle Charlie had taken on the tenancy in the 80s. And I realized that even in that dynamic, in my own family, we had gone from my grandpa, who had absolutely been considered a hero he was very sure of his place in the local community. He was providing food. He was doing what his government asked him to. To my uncle, who very much felt like he was perceived as a villain because he was using uh, chemicals and machinery. And so I had to ask myself the question, in that whole generational shift, we've gone from hero to villain in the space of one generation. What Where do we go now? How are we going to meet all the demands that we are making of our land now? And so that's what really led me to realize this slow, at that time, not so much now, slow revolution that was happening all over the country, which was calling itself regenerative agriculture.
0: Yes, I think what you touched upon there is really fascinating because it feels like what you call regenerative agriculture has been this initially slow transition because we all were told with Brexit that there was this great opportunity that we could lead the way with forward-looking farming and carve a whole new rollout for ourselves as food producers. Um, because I think many of us already feel quite strongly we've got very good produce, um, lead, lead, world-leading produce in many ways. And it feels like that has really escalated. But I guess just for the purposes of ourselves and our audience, what is your definition of what regenerative agriculture really is so we can get into the nuts and bolts of it?
3: Well, it's so the clues in the question because it would be my definition. There isn't one yet. Uh, and I know that there's a great argument for keeping that as um loose as possible because the same techniques will not work for everybody's land and farm. So, regenerative agriculture as I have come to understand it really stands on a number of principles. At its heart always is regeneration of the soil. And I think what marks it out from what I've previously been called sustainable farming in part was just an overuse of the word sustainable so that it was meaningless but also an acknowledgement that the natural systems are so depleted that we cannot and should not sustain that depletion. They need to be regenerated. So in trying to regenerate the soil, the techniques which I saw most often are firstly about disturbing that soil as little as possible, which usually meant either completely stopping ploughing or Minimum cultivation, minimum inversion tillage, which meant that the fungal pathways weren't broken up, worm numbers weren't destroyed and carbon wasn't released into the atmosphere. The second principle was to try and keep living roots in the ground all year round. Uh, And that could be using cover crops, growing something after harvest and before your next crop to keep both the biology happening and to, to cover the earth, essentially or to use those plants within your crop, undersowing it, for example. And the other principle was the integration of livestock. So using livestock as a tool within your system, within a holistic system, by which I mean everything joined up all together, a tool that organic farmers, our farmers now converted to organic, have been using for a long time, but had sort of fallen out Of favor because chemicals were there to take animals' place in terms of both fertility and in terms of using sheep, for example, to graze off what is not wanted. So, those kind of principles were the kind of three main legs. And then within each one was the idea of diversity. So, a move away from monocultures and a move towards more plants, more animals. And a really interesting one, which leads into Another term, I mean, there are a lot that people bandy about, but agri ecological farming. So, this idea that it's not just what you grow on the land, it's about the communities around it and the people upon it. And having as many connections with those people as possible and how they get their food. So, it can be broad and it can be narrow. Those were the kind of commonalities that I saw on lots of farms, whether they were farming predominantly arable whether they were farming livestock.
0: And I think what's really interesting about this, um, because you and I share a passion, in fact, I think when we properly first sat down at a dinner together, uh, which was in Suffolk, uh, we, we decided, we realized that we were both total soil geeks. Because I was, um, <laughs> my kind of disclaimer is that I was at Blue Cookery School 20 years ago, where Doreena Allen was even then talking about our soil degradation around the world and how dangerous it was to, the fact that you know, 95% of world's food today is still grown in soil. And yet it's been degraded at the rate of kind of three football pitches a minute. Uh, Some people say, but definitely it's a big problem. We've seen how soil erosion around the world and desertification is having a big kind of impact on farming. So clearly lots of stuff needs to be done in, in this field. So I'm fascinated by how you stumbled upon it and also how your intellect that you took from law and your 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 law career and kind of translated it into farming because I believe you even went back to college didn't you
3: yeah I'm still there I am a mature. yeah I'm doing a part-time graduate playbook in agriculture at Sirencester, which is now the Royal Agricultural University but when my dad went there 40 years ago it was just called Sirencester Agricultural College uh, which he finds probably as amusing as I do that we're now sharing a wooden Kind of panel dining room that he sat in however many decades ago. Uh, I yeah, it, which has been it has been really interesting to be honest. To be, the most interesting thing is to see who's doing it. So I'm on a I'm on a graduate diploma course, and I think this is one of the things which I kept seeing when I was talking to farmers who, um, some of whom are in the book, some of whom are not in the book. But when I was kind of travelling around the country meeting people what I saw in the enthusiasm for this way of farming was a lot of first-generation entrants who were coming into it. So there were definitely people who got a connection with farming, either because they had returned to it having left the city or because they were second, third, sixth-generation farmers. But there were other people who had no real obvious connection with farming, who felt a very strong pull towards it. In, in my class last year alone, there was a paramedic, documentary maker, a businessman having a midlife crisis. You know, there were three lawyers, if you count me. So there was something that was drawing people in outside of the world of farming. And a lot of them were interested in regenerative systems. And regenerative systems, they're not organic. You can use chemicals. It's a point of some tension, but you can use chemicals. In regenerative systems, the, the idea is to try and minimize the use of their, their use and to go back to a system that works uh, using biology. But it hasn't got the very strict rules that organic has. It felt more maybe accessible and more easy to transition to than organic does. And I think there was something deeper going on as well with the people that I met, which is that they just wanted more meaning and purpose Done the job that they had been doing. And there was something extremely exciting and energizing about these groups of people who were going on farm walks, sharing pictures on social media, being part of WhatsApp groups, saying, I'm doing it like this. What do you do? Oh, I'm doing it like this. And there is a proportion of it, which is first generation farmers, which I find really, really interesting, particularly when maybe 10 years ago, It was common, as it has been in my family with my cousins, who do not want to farm. My grandfather was on an old-fashioned three-generation tenancy. So in principle, in theory, they could have had it if any of the three of them were interested in it. And completely understandably, having seen how hard farming has been for the last 20 years, the kind of glory days of barley barons and the subsidy payments of the 80s, have made very few farmers rich for the last 20 years. And I, it feels like a sort of reversal to that, getting out of farming is happening.
1: Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support.
0: Yes, and I think that's what you capture so beautifully in Rooted because... It feels to me that it is a story of yesteryear and you have got some absolutely beautiful quotes of your grandfather's and poetry that he's written about the romance of being on the land. And I think that's what you really capture in this book, actually, is the romance of of nature, which I found really moving when I read it. And I wasn't expecting that. But you also capture, which I'm really fascinated by, is this excitement, this tangible excitement at people who are on the cutting edge of science and really discovering a way they can put back. Because, you know, in 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 my humble opinion, you know, I know that 30% of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by food production. And we also, all of us have read about the massive insect depletion. And and I know through my own experience that, you know, without the earthworm, the bumblebee and the tongue beetle, you know, the humankind as it were. You know, we're threatened without these insects on, on whose survival we depend on. And it felt that these full stories you talked about in your book were really at this cutting edge of not eschewing modern technology, because in fact, they were embracing technology uh, new technology to be able to particularly work out exactly where a plant might need a little bit of nitrogen to help it grow. But other than that, leave the field alone as much as possible and, and do this no-till digging. And, and I, I could feel that rush of excitement through these often completely new farmers and very brave decisions. I mean, do, will you tell me a bit about the bravery of some of these people against this tidal wave of conventional chemical farming, industrial farming, you know, and then these new brave kind of citizens who are going to, almost trying to create a new form
3: of farming. I should say that my grandfather is currently like hooting in his grave at the idea that he wrote poetry because he did not, he did not write poetry. What What I did was he kept farming diaries from 1939 to 2008 and I read them, which I had been always, I'd been always led to believe that they were basically about the weather. Which was true. A lot of them were about the weather, but there were also. I realised the whole language of how farming had changed so much from when he started doing his dairy rounds in 1939, the beginning of the war, to when he when he left and then shortly afterwards died um, at the end of the 2000s, uh, at 2008, 2011. The, the language had changed. So what I did was draw out that language from kind of threshing and carting and bagging up to spraying and ICI and put them in something that I grandly called a poem.
0: <laughs> well I was poetic. But... It. It's extremely
3: poetic. <laughs> <laughs> well that's very kind. Yeah the the, the bravery uh, of the farmers I met was really astonishing because although I fi- I found it romantic in, in some of the decisions we were making uh farming hasn't been romantic in that bucolic uh urban angle on it for a very long time and i wanted to make sure that i had a counterbalance of both the the beauty that i was seeing in the memoir chapters that splice it and the brutal reality of being a dairy farmer uh especially during the early 2000s but it, it, with rising inputs and how hard it was to make a profit when you are you're in a cycle where the wheat that you're growing requires you to put on inputs; otherwise, you will just not create enough yield to justify expend expenditure on the um, artificial fertilizers and various chemicals you need. So, I found a huge romance in it. I loved. The idea, well, the reality of replant, we replanted love hedgerows along old boundary lines. In dividing up our three big East Anglian fields, we were able to reclaim old field names and then discovered that they would share the surname of a local tree surgeon whose family must have at one point had a connection with that field. So I found it extraordinarily humbling to feel like a very tiny link in a very long chain having come from the city where you're told you're kind of wonderful and important, or you think you're led to believe you're very important all the time. But I don't know that many of the farmers who are in the chapters would have described their life as romantic before. And I think what I found was a common theme, because I've got a variety of different farmers farming in a variety of different ways, is that there was a crunch point, there was a crisis and they had to make a decision. And the decision either was to sell the farm or to change how they did it. Because they weren't making got any money. Because they weren't, well, I've got um, Rebecca and Stuart, who were intensive pig farmers, and they just had a decade worth of both disease and mechanical failure. They had two ventilation failures that wiped out hundreds of pigs. And it was so debilitating not just for their bank account but for their for their mental health that they couldn't carry on as they were i do have ollie who is um a, a tenant on a council farm i thought it was really important to have tenant farmers in there because i think we all think that farmers own their own land and a third of all farm farms is tenanted in england which um which is exactly like my grandfather's. Ollie, it, had his his father lost his dairy in the 90s and he was so desperate to get back to it. And his application to his local council was up against, um, I think it was 87 others. So I wanted to get across a sense that this can be grindingly hard. And often the farmers I met kept going and kept going because there's always something on your to-do list that feels like it has to be done until they reach a kind of crisis point. And in a way, it's a release. It's like the crack that lets the light in because when you've got nothing left, you can then rebuild it up. And so in Rebecca and Stuart's case, when they were left with no more pigs, they decided, well, they went on holiday for the first holiday they'd been on for many years and fell in love with some Jersey cows, and those three Jersey cows then started what in five years has been the most extraordinary transformation into a cow with calf dairy where you keep cows with their um, keep calves with their cows, and they've got a farm shop, they've got a restaurant, they are um, doing multiple other livestock animals as well. They've got a little beef herd. So they have revolutionized what's happening on their land and they're all doing it within a regenerative system. So it takes huge bravery, not just to say, I want out, which let's be honest, in some farmers' cases, just isn't possible because there's so much tied up with it, family-wise. And it takes huge bravery to do it when all of your neighbors are going, that looks a mess. I mean, farming uh, over the hedgeray farming is, I do it all the time. I bet you do it as well. It's extremely tempting just to go, what's going on in there? You know, farm walks are just, as one lovely Lancashire farmer said to me, just chance have a right good nosy around someone else's farm. So I think it's really brave to be able to say, I'm going to do it differently. I might get it wrong. Maybe I'll get it wrong, but I am going to have a go and experiment with it. And I don't, I mean, both, I know you and I have both been to the same regenerative farming festival, which is called Groundswell. And what I think is really unusual about Groundswell, as opposed to other, not just farming, but other conferences I've been to, is that the whole thing is about admitting your failures in a way. Loads of the groups are about what did you do wrong that didn't work so that we can use for it. What, what, when you planted those two crops together and one didn't work, why was that? And I think that is kind of transformatory for, for an industry to be able to say, look at all our failures and let's all learn together from them. Well, yes, because it
0: feels to me like the, one of the keys to um, chemical farming, let's call it, because um, I, I kind of shy away from conventional farming because it feels like that's a term that describes how farming always was, whereas it's only been the last 60 or 70 years that we've actually followed with chemicals. So like, I, I like to say chemical farming. But any, or industrial farm whatever but anyway that type of farming what what they really did is they separated out and and did this kind of mono farming that you talked about so you know lots and lots of animals in a field intensively reared or lots and lots of arable crops grown and they separated that kind of natural cycle and I think what I'm find very exciting and and maybe this is what the the speed that you were talking about right at the beginning the way this revolution seemed to be quite slow to begin with and now seems to be escalating. It's just as you say, in groundswell, there are all these farmers with this thirst for knowledge, it seems, you know, who are really excited and interested by these new discoveries they're making about quite ancient techniques, but with this new technology. And particularly, you know, things like the microbial networks in the soil that we really we knew nothing about even 15 years ago. And we're still on the kind of iceberg of discovering how that plays into the natural cycle and the fertility of the soil and especially with these weather patterns now you know how how we're going to be able to farm food with drought and flooding and keep resilience so i wonder what your thoughts are then about this quite urban dialogue about eschewing meat altogether because i definitely call myself i'm largely vegetarian during the week i mean i, ve- I eat very little meat during the week I definitely do eat meat. I just try not to eat too much of it. But there's a definite, you know, veganism kind of push. Um, So I wonder what you make out because it's almost, again, like the farmers are being vilified,
3: even in regenerative agriculture where they're trying to put back nature into the soil. I had a moment which is one of the things that made me want to write Rooted and it was just after Veganuary and I was in London And I was on a tube and all the adverts for Veganuary were still up and they were all very brightly colored and mostly from big kind of global because our food system is very much global. So KFC or big brands. And they were persuading people to choose a very, well, it looked like, and I did actually look up the ingredients afterwards. Uh, So they were very highly processed plant-based alternatives which were presented as a significantly better option not because they were necessarily more nutritious but because they were more ecological and there was a tone in them that was all about laughing at the people who ate meat so the cowpat has hit the van uh don't be a carnivore and it was very conspiratorial like the silly Parochial farming people with their cows and their sheep. And we have basically sophisticated ourselves out of meat. We've managed to create products that don't even really, we don't even need to really think about their provenance. They're just, we'll put a little green label on it. And, you know, you can order that as the option on your short haul flight to Rome for the weekend and feel good about it. And it was so different. To mostly the, res- the research that I had been reading about how grazing transformed soil, how grazing could be an alternative to fungicides, for example, putting sheep on early wheats, how grazing in a particular way, let's call it regenerative grazing, which is not the same as turning out sheep or cows or whatever into a field and just leaving it there which is called set stocking, how that the regenerative grazing can double the amount of forage in a field, which of course doubles the land value, doubles the amount of, well, let's look at the other way, half the amount of land you need to create the same amount of forage. And how it was all part of a system. It wasn't just like one separated thing off. And it just felt very, it felt very Brexit. It felt like you could put a slogan on a bus and it didn't really matter what the actual evidence said people would absorb it and run with it because it was it played into their kind of own prejudices what I have found so compelling about farming is how intellectual it is you have to be an ecologist a biologist an economist marketing manager the level of understanding that you need to have about how natural systems work, is really layered. You have to be able to look at a larvae and go, well, that's a ladybird larvae that will hatch in however long, so I don't need to worry about my beans being covered in aphids because when that hatches, that's going to eat everything, so I don't need to spray it. You know, that kind of detail you need need to know about. It's complicated, right? It's really hard to be able to get something which looks at how... A regenerative system which uses livestock can also not just sequester carbon, but can also hugely increase insects, bird life, the ecological and biological value of that farm, can create a soil that will hold water so that villages downstreams are not flooded and their homes aren't ruined. All these layers of benefit are very hard to just step in a statistic. And so all the nuance, like with most political debate, it gets lost and it is reduced to a tagline. And what I find so frustrating about it is it allows people to make a a choice and they think that that is an easy solution and it removes them even further from Mm. their food. And I mean, I start the book with a poem, by Mary Oliver, who also wrote the line, attention is the beginning of devotion. You can't care about something you don't know about. Uh, the book is very much a sort of my own awakening, if you like, like being a deep sea diver and then having only known the surface, going underneath and seeing this world underneath. In order to reconnect people with their food, they have to be honest about what it is, where it comes from, what's in it um Sarah, it's
0: been such like we could carry on talking about this subject, <laughs> which
3: is so meaty. Didn't even get onto soil, Tori. Would have bored everyone silly talking about. We didn't
0: talk about soil, and it's such uh, it's such a fascinating subject. I'm sad we have got another three hours, but <laughs> it's been so delightful to talk about you and hear a little bit about your journey. And for anyone listening, honestly rooted. Is the most incredible read. It makes farming fascinating. I say that, I am quite fascinated already because it is such a brilliant subject. So thank you so much, um, Sarah Langford. Thank you so much. And thank you to our audience. And thank you to Intelligence Squared.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.
2: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.